has a question that's pertinent, I think, uh, to the sound uh-huh. of uh, Camille locking and loading over there, which is, as a Patreon subscriber, can I gain access to Camille's Southern Compound? Fair no, question. That, that is beyond Patreon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're going to have to pay a lot, um, and at least a percentage is going to be in gold, dust, and Bitcoin. So we can we could talk about that. I mean, those I are all. I won't disclose. Right now, I so. won't disclose the amount. That's why I said I want gold dust, Bitcoin, and cash. I'm saying I want all three things. Okay. Yeah. It's just it's necessary. You're gonna have to diversify. But cash every single what, what every single access contract is going to be negotiated independently and directly with me. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that just uh, that he, he got he's gone crazy down there. By the way, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we saw um, like we uh, Moynihan and I got a glimpse of video uh, mm, uh, at, yeah. at the beginning of this, which we quickly urged him to stop it. But his hair yeah. has gone all like mangy. <laughs> Jesus and shit. It's like 1978. Where you look like that girl from the Fugees. Well, I'm not going to be able to. <laughs> oh, my That girl. Are you talking about Lauren Hill? I know. I mean, that's the I know her name. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Isn't she a freedom fighter though, Lauren Hill? Like her and Wesley Snipes are the uh, the last oh. true libertarians. Oh, oh like the... we don't pay taxes because someone sold us a book that wasn't true. Something that's like not that. that's not the libertarian. That's not a libertarian <laughs> thing. But yeah, no, Wesley. I don't think is super libertarian about that. I think I know, he's just I actually confused. Think he was, I think he was. Uh, I'm not sure, Lauren. No, yeah. no. I think I think he was actually philosophy. I think he was just taken in by the prospect of low or no taxes I, there, I don't know that there was any other libertarian ideal being embraced there isn't that the only ideal <laughs> the taxation is theft camille um, uh no, yeah listen no. uh, like we're starting off on the top this is an important day a special day a great day mm-hmm. uh in the fifth column universe a terrible day for the world um but a, a pretty good day in the fifth column universe <laughs> and i'm gonna get there by no, reading a listener uh <laughs> <laughs> which is really like it it they were super cool but this is Todd Todd is one of the uh the 25 30 people who came out and hung out with us uh about oh, yeah. about 10 days ago and it's really cute that it took someone this long to send this mail but here it is it's, it's brief gentlemen Todd's great by the way give us like a, some tequila and stuff lawyer yeah, he's great yeah he's uh, awesome gentlemen would appreciate it if you could keep us updated on Mr. Moynihan's plague <laughs> status since <laughs> some of us were in rather close proximity yeah. to typhoid Michael yeah at the that's Bleaker good Street Ty- bar. Yeah. thanks yeah. again for everything you do oh yeah it's just like about us it's not like you were sitting home Todd sweating 
Uh, yeah. And then he says, Todd, the fat guy who bought, who brought the mezcal. <laughs> Todd's awesome. Todd's funny. So um, that's a great yeah. segue into. Yeah. I can play the, the clavichord. Oh, dear. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, yeah. I, oh, no, man, oh, please. God. I'm going to cut that out. <laughs> I'm going to cut it out. It's it's it honestly sounds like uh, like you're playing a harpsichord. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you're wearing like a you're like a like a puffy wig and short pants. Yeah. Well, that by the way is not the only message like that. There've been many many very nice thousands. messages, uh, thousands uh, uh, wishing me well. Um, the funny thing is is that um, um, I was very very sick last week, and I appreciate the messages about that. And um, because of my beats, my diabetes, uh, I was. Uh, I was uh, shunted to the front of the I was pushed to the front of the line. I was happy about that. And I, they said it was going to take 72 hours, which would be tomorrow. But this morning I woke up to a message that I don't have COVID. Woo! I do have chlamydia. That's, that was a surprise. <laughs> that was a real surprise. Chlamydia, um, along with 52 other sexually transmitted diseases, is what you're well, saying. Well, what it was surprising about was not that I had it, was that they were testing for it. Nobody told me that. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was just a one test. The um, mouth no, but I did, I did have, um, like a lot of people, the uh, influenza uh, virus, but not uh, the COVID virus. I did, uh, however, because um, I posted a picture on Instagram of myself at the testing site, get a message from a friend of mine who's a journalist at a major network who said, how are you doing? And I said, um, I made a joke um, back to her. I said, I'm fine. This is the, I got the result and blah, blah, blah. And then she responded to me. She's a former producer of mine, by the way. Um, she responded to me and she's like, oh, that's great. I've got, I've got the COVID. Oh. So my friend has Corona and she is um, now sequestered at home with her husband for, for a couple of couple of weeks. And she said, I feel fine. Totally fine. I just I'm just, you know, bored was her response. So yeah. so I did talk to somebody who contracted it today. And Matt, didn't you say that the, the Imperial College guy that our one of our listeners uh, just like this uh, seconds before we hit the clicky uh, here, um, uh, Patreon listener James let us know that the lead author of the uh, famous, infamous, uh, even uh, Imperial Report that like absolutely freaked out the entire world, including the United States government and, and, and others, like looking at modeling what would happen if we do this, do that, named Neil Ferguson, um, yeah. not, not Nile, yeah, with Nile, um, uh, just now um, uh, has uh, contracted uh, COVID. Um, Man. Developed a slight, uh, slight dry but persistent cough yesterday, and self isolated even though I felt fine. Uh, then developed high fever, and uh, you know there's a lot of uh, COVID nineteen in Westminster. Boom. Uh, so he's there, and we also have now a couple of members of of Congress. Uh, are we are we mad that he got a test so fast like we were with all the basketball players? <laughs> what? Why should there's we be mad? We don't saw, know. Like, we don't know what his risk factors were. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he's he his risk factor is that he's the the COVID guy, <laughs> so he's probably around a little bit of it. Part of me he's, is like super mad that people like uh, Moynihan with his fake diabetes uh, got to the front of the line when, as we mentioned in, in the previous uh, dispatch, that I was uh, I was trying to like elbow my I I know a guy. Uh, they weren't having it at all for for the yeah. tests down the street. Um, and but like certainly part of me is mad is the whole like the Utah Jazz got all tested and nobody else in Oklahoma did. But uh, there was a, uh, a Twitter uh, thread uh, yesterday and we're recording this on, I believe, Wednesday. It's really hard to tell what day is anything anymore. Um, but uh, 
someone like walking through uh, very specifically all the MBA tests. And I think even some of this was before or around the time that uh, four New Jersey Nets um, got it or Brooklyn Nets got it, uh, including Kevin Durant and uh, Kyrie Irving. Um, and but the guy walked through it and he was like, actually, this is pretty interesting mm-hmm. information because it gives us a sense of people who uh, are not really uh, symptomatic at all. Um, I think maybe one out of the many NBA people are and and uh, but like are in their 20s and see a lot of people and it gives us a sense of the general population a little bit more. And that's actually useful information that can, you know, either freak you out or not freak you out, depending on your point of view. So, uh, yeah, I'm a little bit mad, but I'm also happy that there's any tests. And and like ultimately, I well, think when we look look back at things and look forward to things and sideways at things, um the one thing that was bungled was the tests in this country. And, uh, and it's, that's, it's a, that's a bad, uh, that's a bad bungle. And I'm super glad that, you know, 10 days out, right. Uh, Moynihan, since, uh, we all saw each other and we're slathering the mezcal grease over one another. Um, (laughs) uh, none of us are sick. Speak for yourself. Yeah. You, I'm speaking for you, pal. I, I, I got, I got re- well, I was really drunk. I got really, really sick. And, um, and it was, of course, like all the symptoms are exactly the same. And, uh, the Except only thing were, was like, the vomiting and stuff, right? Well, the addition of the vomiting, but after that, after it had gone away, then it had kind of come back again with the cough and with this tightness in my chest and with like the shortness of breath. And, you know, I was like, not at all paranoid about it. I just like, it kept going so i talked to my doctor and she was like camille's like mad that i don't have it it's you were a little you were a little paranoid that's why i'm laughing not i mean i don't think paranoid is the right word i was like concerned that i might have this pandemic in my body the pandemic is all it's it is the not the virus it's the pandemic is in my body (laughs) and it's the entire pandemic is in my body and i'm a bit like oh god mostly because i wanted to see my daughter and i i saw her tonight for the for the first time in a while because you know kids i don't want her to be a transmission point i don't like it's like yeah kids survive it it's not a big deal but i you know if you can avoid giving the covid to your child so yeah i mean all of those factors were were like weighing on me and it was like i didn't play anything up i just said hey so this is what's going on and my doctor's like you're a diabetic you're in brittle health because of your your drug and alcohol problem and you got to go to the front of the line well moynihan i want to say i'm really happy for you and everything and i'm glad that you're going to survive but i have an adjacent (laughs) an adjacent point to make uh matt a moment ago you were talking about the nba players and your frustration that they were able to get these tests done um one is qualified, it, is it, qualified frustration. I'm actually I, happy that they did, but like that's I have fair. class war, class war rage. Right. And I'm, I'm, well, the question I was going to ask is, do we actually, have we seen reporting that suggests that they got some sort of special treatment or is it not the case that someone who tested positive met the appropriate criteria to be able to get one of these tests? And since all of these people were in close proximity to this person and not only in close proximity, were like getting sweat all over. Like that is the reason why everyone got tested, and eventually the it got to the Lakers after the determined that members of the Nets team had also um, picked up this virus. I would say uh, that there's been some reporting. Most of the reporting has been uh, supposition 
because it's actually difficult to figure it out. But more importantly, um, I'm 100% confident that our proximity to Moynihan, if we were NBA players, (laughs) would have led us to get tests. We would have been tested. It would have found a way. Um, But our our proximity to Moynihan, if in fact he had tested positive, would have given us another one of the factors that gets someone the test. So that's the first, I mean, that's the first point I just wanted to, to get to. No, I, th- I think our, our, our proximity to Moynihan as someone who has taken a test and it was, uh, and like, is it, is it positive? Is it negative? Uh, if, if we had enough juice behind us, I am, I feel confident in guessing that it would have gotten us the front of the line. Huh. Well, the second point, though, that you were making about NBA players themselves, like as a demographic, these athletic young people who are pick managed to pick up this bug anyways, um, like as that being a particularly useful benchmark, or at least maybe it being somewhat instructive, what is what's the piece of instruction that we might take away from that, that young people, youthful athletic people do manage to pick up this bug as well? Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and that. Uh... A certain percentage of uh, of people, and I forget what it was in the in the, in the something like nine percent, I think, of NBA players who've been tested have gotten it, and almost none of them have had symptoms. Which is not to say that nine percent of the general population um, has it now, um, but it is to say that there are people who carry it. Many people, probably, um, definitely, who carry it now, who are healthy, who are never going to feel side effects from it who don't know that they are carrying it. And that's useful information uh, to have, yeah. I think. Um, you know, like those, all, all, all of the uh, like trawling for spring break idiots videos that we've seen out there, which, which are all phenomenal, like Florida man, Florida visitor yeah. man videos out there uh, kind of uh, underlie that. And it's, it's really like the hardest thing to wrap your brain around, especially, and I say this out of great uh, sympathy and also uh, upset at the way that places like New York City, where where at least I am staying at the moment, and Moynihan is still here, uh, and Fish is still here for the moment. Um, but like uh, you know, the places that are impacted in the, the Bay Area, they're just shutting everything down. And who gets hit when that happens? It's young people. It's precisely the twenty eight year olds who work around or frequent bars who are not ever going to get sick from this ever. Um, uh, and it sucks to be them. It really, really does in ways that we're only just beginning to notice now. And, you know, it's like generationally it's going to suck for them um, because the economy is about to tank. We are taking so many measures right now that are so extreme. And even I, as someone who's par- more paranoid than uh, than uh, Camille is about the uh, the tidal wave that's that's coming towards us, um, like that's terrible. Um, and at the same time, like having a measure of X percentage of people in this interesting, but like what this demographic um, are tested positive, and they never would have thought of being positive, uh, is something that is useful knowledge to have. That's knowledge that would otherwise be difficult. To process if you're just you know a 25 year old in the world feeling pretty healthy um yeah. i just wanted to point out there's a uh donald trump was asked uh on wednesday 
when uh, he was asked about the professional athletes, uh, this is a Reuters story. There's a Reuters story specifically about our professional athletes getting to the front of the line. And uh, Donald Trump was asked that his response was, no, I wouldn't say so. But perhaps that's the story of life. That does happen on occasion. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. It's too, too that's, real. That's, too real. I, I mean. It's true. I mean, that is that is true. That's, it is the story of the life. true answer. It's not right kind of the the answer you want from your president, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, great on the curve. So yeah, I just and I got another message from a friend uh, right now of a friend of theirs who I've also met um, has tested positive too. So yeah, yeah. I I, I wonder. I wonder. I mean, I don't. I don't know how much we can really say from an empirical statistical standpoint about you know how meaningful or, or useful the insights. How how meaningful or useful an insight we can derive from the NBA thing, but I think even the fact that we're looking at stuff like that and trying to to derive some knowledge from it is indicative of the place where we find ourselves, which is we're taking these dramatic steps, and there is a great deal that we don't know about the enemy that we face or the threat that we're trying to account for, and I find that as time goes on, I become increasingly concerned about the level of certainty on the the level of certainty on the part of pretty much everyone but particularly the most vocal part of the we have to do something now in fact not something we need to do everything like anyone who thinks that you know the economic castration that the United States of America is a diving headfirst into um, the the guaranteed recession that may very well uh, turn into a depression that you get when you shut down the entire country for an indefinite period of time that could be six to 12 to 18 months or more. I don't know. Like, I don't know if, if we have done the sort of thoughtful, pragmatic like, evaluation that one probably ought to do even in a circumstance that seems somewhat existential and i'm i'm deeply concerned about the fact that i keep seeing things like statistical statistical data points that are you know they're they're guess it's guesswork it's based on a lot of assumptions that say two million people will die if we do nothing there's no universe in which we do nothing. We're already doing a great deal. And even if there weren't all of these like mandatory closures, it's almost certainly the case that much, a, much of the very high-risk population would already be taking themselves out of circulation and avoiding people. And that much of the corporate world could certainly be encouraged to support that segment of the population working from home. Anyone who is at high risk of getting this can be isolated without bringing the entire country to a halt in the way that we've chosen to do. And certainly without these really insane, rather obviously bad policy remedies that are being paraded out, like this crazy arms race of overconcern, where you have all of these like miserable pieces of policy that get trotted out and everyone votes in favor of them uncritically because of this bizarre like reverse Pascal's wager situation where it doesn't matter how bad the policy is. It's better to get maybe yelled at, but probably not for having quote cared too much. Um, and, and this whole situation has me like deeply uncomfortable. 
Like I, I think when you say Matt, it's going to be particularly bad for them. Like it really could be like a lost decade and a lost decade has, that's a tangible cost that we are absolutely incurring because we're afraid of what might materialize. And I don't know that enough people are reckoning with that. Certainly the policymakers aren't reckoning with it. Um, not the federal ones who are busy patting themselves on the back for giving away money ineffectually or the various governors who suddenly matter and are deeply are, are, are elated to be able to wield the kind of power that they're wielding. I just think no one is really taking into account like all of the ugly incentives that come to the fore when you have a, a crisis like this. And it is totally possible for the pandemic to be real and the panic to be real. And it's also possible for the panic to be potentially as dangerous as the thing that you're trying to protect yourself against. Well, there's the, I mean, yes. And also no, my no is that I, uh, there's an, a natural incentive process that anyone, uh, who holds power in a crisis is going to swell to fill the space for sure. I, Elated is not the, the 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 verb that I would use. It was a verb. I don't even know. Um, a state of being that I would use to describe <laughs> uh, what a lot of uh, uh, governors are doing. It sucks. Their job kind of sucks right now. It's bad. It's not fun. People are dying and they're freaked out. You know, like I watch the push and pull between a hundred people across the country have died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, it's it's the it's. Uh, I, I think I use the future tense there where like, yes, it's a hundred. Um, but all of the curves, uh, that have been well observed, the trend lines have been, uh, continued to be met in such a way that, um, there isn't any reason so far to suspect that there won't be a completely overwhelmed situation with, ICU beds in New York City uh, beginning 10 to 14 days from now. Yeah, um, well, if, we, have a, you, we now have a naval naval hospital ship that's going to be docking in New York Harbor. Eventually. Over, it's it's uh, actually like yeah. getting like lubed up in, uh, in Annapolis yeah. or something. I just don't know this, how I mean, well you can model that stuff, honestly. Like, I, I, well, just, I, don't, you, I don't think those, I don't think those curves are necessarily going to be all that reliable because we, we actually... We are seeing what's happening in Italy, and even without the massive shutdown efforts, I think the most vulnerable people isolating themselves is totally something that I would expect to see. So I already suspect that if we're dealing with these models, that the curves probably ought to be a bit flatter, presuming we don't do you know, the most dramatic thing. Um, and, and I just don't, I think we're, we're presuming far too much about just how accurate those things are. And, and I think you no, can say I, that while respecting the potential of the malady to kill a lot of people. I think, I think that you are putting, we are presuming too much in place of, we are, um, fearing, um, uh, 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 like if you're, if your job, right, is to be a person God help you, uh, who is like in control of some amount of government real estate, right? Like ultimately your job is to protect the citizens. That's not what happens 99.9% .9 of the time. It's a bunch of garbage, but ultimately this is your job. And so your job is to, in the worst possible cases, model 
for the worst case scenario, at least somewhat. I mean, if you're doing due diligence and this is like get government out of it for a second. Right. Where are you right now, Camille? Are you in New York City? No, I left because the government there terrifies me. <laughs> right. And, like and the you, citizens and the citizens terrify me even more. You changed your behavior because that there was like you rationally took care of your domain. Right. So like when you are rationally or even irrationally or whatever, if you are taking care of your domain, it is a rational act to do worst case scenario planning. It is a rational act. I'm not saying that what is happening in policy is rational because it is not. And I've written as much, you know, at, at reason uh, yesterday about all of the uh, curfews and, and lockdowns that are happening. New Jersey, it's, happen it's going to happen or hopefully it won't happen because Cuomo hates de Blasio just that much. But it's certainly happening with everybody in the Bay Area, six counties in the Bay Area. And, and I think a couple maybe in Southern California now are like locking people down, shelter in place in their homes. I think that's terrible. I think a lot of the policies are, are tangibly terrible and should be opposed. However, I think that it is a thing that you should do when you're mentally mapping this stuff out is to do worst case scenario planning. And when you see that curve, it's not like I'm presuming this is the truth. It is like, my God. We need to make sure that doesn't happen. It's going to get you to bad places, but you do have to do that work. You do I, have to plan for that, I think. I don't. I think you can plan for it, but that doesn't mean that you indulge solutions that will necessarily give you that atomic outcome. Like this is this is a situation where folks say, like, we we will pay any cost to avert this disaster that might happen and the, and you have to pay the cost no matter what that's that is that is built in the cost is but the disaster you're trying to avert is a possibility and we're not we're not sufficiently discounting that so far as i can see i saw today maybe you guys saw it too uh, i think it was uh sorkin had a piece in uh the times where he presented a proposal for ending the financial panic that is being caused by the coronavirus. And it was for the government to do some sort of guaranteed loan program, not to some businesses that are in trouble, but a bridge loan to everyone who owns a business in America. And that is the big corporations and the small corporations and every sole proprietorship in LLC. And he posits that this would cost, you know, not hundreds of billions, not a few trillion but tens of trillions of dollars and maybe 20% would default, he suggests. But even then it would be worth the cost because you want to have a policy that will actually bring the economy back to where it was before the pandemic began. And this is the only way. And it's insane. Like that is a totally insane proposal that an adult human wrote and sent into the New York Times. And they thought, you know what? We'll publish this. This seems reasonable. In our totally absurd, upside down world of crisis policymaking and ridiculous phony rescue plans that can't get like any more absurd in their ability to hurt people and not fix the problems that they're actually addressing. The oh, it can get more. It can get more absurd because Eric Bowling, who is on, <laughs> who is on like OA, whatever the hell it is, uh, the TV. Out there. The place that lets you send send dick pics to, <laughs> no. to girls in the in the makeup chair. 
<laughs> They're fine with it. Totally okay with it. So he's at that place, and he's like, I'm going to send, I'm going to unveil my proposal for getting us all out of this. And, like, Trump called him on the phone. Oh, my might God. Have even, might have even done it when he was on air. There was, like, some showy, like, oh, like, the, my, the bat phone is ringing. And then uh, the president of the United States, so enamored is he of Eric Bowling and the and the uh, QAnon network or whatever it's called. Um, <laughs> he, he he then uh, reportedly uh, began to adopt this uh, sort of like, you know, send out thousand dollar checks on in April, a thousand dollar check in May. Uh, I think just today there's a, a new trillion dollar uh, bailout. And some of this. uh Kind of uh, to support Camille's point, although it sounds like that, uh, that you know, to, to the lay listener that we're disagreeing about stuff. Um, but like uh, in these times of crisis, you want anybody to put, be putting some a bit of sand in the gear, some kind of intellectual resistance to this. We saw this in 2008, regardless of your own personal position of it. I was happy that there was at least token resistance to the idea that we just had to throw all the money at the problem at the time in the financial crisis in September 2008. This is back when people like Michael Bloomberg were saying, like, it doesn't matter what we do, we just have to do something. And this was a widespread sentiment across the board. Um, there were a few people back then who said no, eventually they voted yes. And then like, it was just like, let's throw it all out. There's nobody left like that. There's like three dudes. They all suck in some ways who are left like this. There's no intellectual ideological opposition to writing all the checks all the time. So the next like 72 hours, seven days, seven weeks is going to be an absolute orgy of putting cementing into place the yeah, orgy and cement. Yes. Uh, in, in <laughs> so that's, many horrible that's, policies. That's really one of the best ones for like 10, 10 fucking years. And no one's, no one's going to blink at it. The only people going to blink are Camille at his compound, like, cocking his Glock uh, and uh, <laughs> talking about how it's all fake and like downloading Eric Weinstein video. <laughs> uh, even I even when you say it, it makes me want to cock my gun again. It, uh, even just yeah, you suggesting yeah, it. I'm, I'm looking gonna, at it. He's going to shoot his mother-in-law by mistake. And <laughs> oh my it's, we're going to have to do a Patreon about it. Yeah. <laughs> Is he going to cut? No, he's going to um, There we go. I just, I have to, first of all, I'm impressed that uh, the White House appears to be the only um, place in DC where you can get the OANN network. <laughs> that's well, that's their music, and though they just click the <laughs> click the just put the slide, pull the slide back, and um, uh, what is like? Does Eric Bowling? I can't. I didn't know he had a show. Is it called like Freedom Balls or something? What is the? It's what is the pretty, name of it? I think that's pretty show? close. Is that is it Freedom Balls? <laughs> that's good. <laughs> Free, it's freedom, no longer the specialists with our friend Freedom Chad Dong. Yeah. <laughs> oh shit, that's right. They do that as specialists. Um, yeah, I will say only one one thing about this because the speculative stuff. I, I mean, it is that that one um, piece that was being sent around by the Stanford uh, professor with the uh, sort of Romanian last name, um, Nick Christakis, uh, posted it on Twitter, and there was. A lot of responses, a lot of a lot of which uh, kind of went into what we were talking about on the the last podcast we did of that. How dare you even even be skeptical of this? That's what I found kind of because mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not qualified to to judge uh, how people are saying he's gotten it wrong. But the basic premise was, you know, let's consider that we might be completely overestimating what this thing will do. But just on on one data point. 
is that in Italy yesterday, was it yesterday, there were 475 deaths. And that was the biggest day yet in Italy. And that was, I believe, yesterday. No, it was today. It was yesterday. And that's pretty terrifying. Um, so, you know, using Italy as a model, some people have said like, hey, you can't use Italy as a model because of X, Y, and Z. This is why it's different. Right now is one of these points we're at where it's just information overload in which you're expected as the average news, news consumer to separate what's good information and what's bad information. And it's funny to watch Fox in particular do a pivot on this and realize that everybody in their demographic is going to die from coronavirus. And so it's like the Chiron is we're in that point now where I, I, I turned it on today that during the commercials, the Chiron's on, you know that, you know, when, where we are, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like, it's running all the time. And, uh, the president, uh, is doing something that is um, also terrifying because, I mean, you see he referred to himself today as a wartime president. Did you notice this? Did you see this yet? Yeah, I mm -hmm. saw him like hitting that pretty hard. No, we're, at war. Pretty... we're at war. I don't know and, if you and, heard and, this, but yeah. Well, well Merkel, like... Merkel said this is the greatest threat that we've faced since World War II. So I think he's the greatest, the greatest, if you start before World War II, the greatest threat we faced was Germany. So sorry, Angela. I mean, there's, like next to what we did, this is really bad. That's why don't you just leave when Germans are talking about World War II, just leave it out. That's not fair. Just t talk That's about something. No, it is fair because they kind of <laughs> fucked things up in, you know, in 1939 to 1945. Um, well, let's start before that too. Oh but you gosh. know, so, but so Trump is, um, you know, uh, invoking, re-signing, reauthorizing the 1950 Defense Production Act, which is a, a Korean War era thing that, I mean, in one sense, it's so the government can intervene and tell private businesses what to produce in the time of war. Uh, but, it, you know, this is the part where Trump... Um, starts having fun. And I, and, and, and I truly mean that. I mean, it's, weren't, weren't Democrats likes... calling for that? Oh, they, of course. They were I, demanding course, it. it uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's this as, is, as did making... Obama during his presidency. By the way. Yeah. I'm not making a partisan point mm -hmm. here. It's that the, the, when the president is taking it though, in starting to use that language mm -hmm. in saying, you know, the language of sacrifice. And he said, it's war. And I, I, I'm a, you know, a, a wartime president, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have to defeat this invisible enemy. It's going to be complete victory and total victory and blah, blah, blah. I, you know, that's also terrifying. And, it, and, and one would hope that there is enough difference and, and enough um, space between the parties that there would be some skepticism. Uh, and that's, of course, never the case. It wasn't the case in, in 2001, 2002, and it's not the case now. But so, you know, the disaster socialism that I talked about, there's a million of these, of these uh, things. I sent you guys one the other day. What the hell was it? I'll have to look it up. But there was something like, hey, we need right now to pass like universal like preschool or something. I can't remember what it was. Mm -hmm. But it was one mm -hmm. of these things completely unrelated to what was happening. I mean, so, Elizabeth Warren had a huge list of like, here's the 95 things that we should do because of this that have nothing to do with this. You know, what she, you know, when she could have gotten those done is when she when she became president. But she's mm -hmm. not going to do that because she sucks at this. So, you know, just relax. You know, thank you. Just just slide your list under the door, and and we'll be fine. But you know, it is it is an an, an amazing thing to watch uh, because the number of things that people are like like look, these two things can remain true that this is a terrifying uh, pandemic, 
and that if 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 Italy is 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 the you know any guide, it's going to get worse, right? And we don't know because we don't have enough data. Even that that piece that was kind of more on Camille's side, that by, by this um, Stanford professor was basically saying we don't have enough data to really understand this. So we might be possibly overreacting to it. But the key point of that is that we don't have enough data, right? Mm-hmm. So where where we are are now is that we don't have enough data. This thing could be very, 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 very bad. In the worst case scenario that people are putting forward, that might that might you know happen. And it is, can also be true that it is terrifying that Donald Trump, Democrats, everybody is trying to shove through their their preferred uh, policy goals that are tangentially related to coronavirus, and that we're not on we shouldn't be on war footing. That can I offer kind of scary to me? Can I offer one more refinement then? Because it's I think it's not merely a matter of we don't have enough data, which I agree. And everything I say should be caveated with I I care deeply about this pandemic issue. I have a much greater understanding of it now than I did ten days ago, five days ago, certainly a month ago. And it is my contention that, and this is limited government, anarcho-capitalist Camille talking, that we have to, ought to, should have done a great deal more um, to prevent the next pandemic because there's no reason to suspect that it couldn't happen in 10 days versus 100 years from now. And it could be twice as severe as the current bug that we're dealing with. There is a great deal of preparatory work that has to be done if you're actually going to contend with this. And it needs to be done not with the two extra weeks that were wasted by the administration or two months that were wasted by the administration, if someone wants to make that argument, but in the, t- in the decade that was wasted across three different administrations when we could have been better prepared to confront what was a known threat by many, many people. And you, you do that preparatory work. But, what I, but the point that I actually want to make is that in the absence of there being a lot of evidence, smart people who are well-informed will perhaps offer some of their concerns, but they'll offer them in a qualified and nuanced way. What will happen on the other side, however, is the threat inflation begins. Like There are very confident assertions from people who are perhaps just as informed or perhaps even a little worse informed who say, well, it's going to be like 2 million. It'll be 3 million in, in, the, in, the, in an environment that is dominated by crisis, that's enveloped in it. That messaging gets amplified. It always does. And the possibility, the likelihood that you're responding to, to the gravest messaging about something and the worst case scenario mongering, which becomes increasingly worst case scenario as time goes on and as the, the threat draws nearer, like the crisis has a gravity. And as it gets closer, things are drawn closer to all of the bad ideas and start to spin around ever more hectically. And I think it's it's worth acknowledging that it's not it's not just like we don't know, but in an in an environment of we don't know, sometimes you have to push back harder because even when you don't know, because everybody else is just so damn confident. So, yeah, a a couple of things about that is that one is that, you know, people can be panicky and send you panicky text messages and people on Twitter can be panicky. and And it essentially matters what the government does. But that other stuff, of course, does matter, too. But, you know, I think 
one of the ways people are reacting, particularly on Fox, uh, when you see that uh, um, that Chiron that is even going to commercial time, is that the president basically said, this is not a big deal. We have it under control. And don't worry about it. And he didn't say that it was a hoax, but like the, the hype was a hoax, et cetera. And now I think the average person would wonder, what information does the president have that he's done a complete 180 and says, I'm a wartime president. Uh, because, I mean, the number of things that they were doing, like, for instance, as Matt pointed out, the the Navy hospital ship, which will um, supposedly be uh, docking in New York Harbor sometime, the, was it Esper said it was going to be about two weeks um, and maybe more. And if that is actually the case, one would wonder why the administration didn't get that ready you know, looking at China and looking at what was what was developing in Italy two weeks ago, um, they were not paying attention. They were asleep at the wheel. And now they're taking this very, very seriously. Right. And and so I think that the people who were previously not taking it seriously are seeing a government that is and saying, well, they must know something. This is, uh, you know, because you see Scott Gottlieb out there. I mean, look, Steve Mnuchin is, a, is, an, is an interesting case because the entire re-election bid of the president rests on, in a lot of ways, the unemployment rate. The jobs are great. The market's been, been fantastic. All the market gains since Donald Trump became president have been wiped out in a few days. And, and Mnuchin says today or yesterday that we have to prepare ourselves for 20% unemployment then that might be looming on the horizon. When a member of the administration is saying you might have 20% unemployment when they've done nothing but spend the past like two plus years spinning the employment figures to say that Donald Trump is, a, is an economic genius and one of the best presidents of the past 200 years, I mean, that's an admission. So it feels like these that, that, that we're going from something that was like a shoulder shrug, we'll take care of it, to something that even the administration is panicking with a wartime president and a treasury secretary who's saying, oh, by the way, we might reach 20% unemployment. Yeah, but he's also saying it in the context of trying to advance a policy that the president desperately wants to enact, which is a policy that allows him to engage in this sort of theater of, of concern. And yes, to, but I mean, he's to, still to, running to for re-election. To send everyone right? a check that says a thousand that for a thousand dollars that's signed by Donald Trump, like that is what he's that is what he's sort of suggesting that the twenty percent unemployment would come from. And and quite frankly, I'm not sure he's wrong. Uh, in fact, I think that the checks will go out, and you'll still get something like twenty percent un- un- unemployment because the policies that are being enacted right now to to stave off this potential calamity are so devastating that. I have no idea, and I'm not certain anyone does, just how bad they'll be for the U.S. economy. But they will be very bad. They're already having an effect. The, 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 un, the terminations are happening. The bankruptcy filings are being prepared. The stock market has been in a disarray and is likely to continue to be in a disarray. And they, they are sowing seeds of destruction and doing what might be, um, if not irreparable harm, extraordinary harm that will be long lasting and far reaching. And but keep, keep that's, in mind, that's what has that, me freaked that, out. No, me too. I mean, but keep in mind also that there isn't a place, uh, a country in the world where this has actually um, revealed itself to be, to be a problem and people are dying um, that hasn't done pretty much the exact same thing. The United Kingdom was the exception and they seem to be now um, lurching towards what would be, 
the Italy position or Donald Trump's position or, mm-hmm. or, or a more aggressive position. And sure. they look like they're going to be closing schools next week. So, I mean, across the board, I mean, Every, you can see uh, yeah, essentially yeah. how people, I mean, people react to this. That's what in, I mean when I say way, the crisis has a gravity. I, I, I agree. It does. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and the, the, the thing is, is that, you know, people aren't buying all the toilet paper in the grocery store for, because they're like listening to, reasoned analysis that you know american people are not any different than anywhere else i mean you see this in australia this is in the uk there's empty shelves everywhere there's videos of people having punch-ups because uh you know somebody's hoarding all the toilet paper which is i think a video that you sent the other day camille um Mm -hmm. and you you cannot be uh, make the american public be rational about this no matter what you do so the second you say this is the worst case scenario, the caveat of a worst case scenario, which is, you know, how, how you know, scientists, statisticians, everyone operates. You're going to give it the worst case, worst case scenario. The, if the president does not get that, then somebody's doing something horribly wrong. But the second that comes out as a news story, you see 48,000 people descending on, on um, you know, Whole Foods to buy all the toilet paper. Yeah. So, I mean, there's just these chain reactions going on, much like the chain reactions of people getting COVID. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that I would add um, uh, of uh, potential interest, a, a friend of mine in D.C. who works in uh, health, uh, global health kind of initiatives, sent me a text and she hasn't written the story yet, so I won't name her. But um, looking back at other pandemic or like epidemic crunches like Ebola and, and everywhere, the lockdown, shelter in place like you can't leave your house um strictures uh at least according to her text and we'll see it in in the story but it's worth thinking about when crafting policies these sort of competitively restrictive policies from Seattle to San Francisco to New York and elsewhere now um is that in every case the people riot <laughs> it turns out yeah. it turns out that we don't like to be told to you could just stay here the whole time. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm I'm impressed with my family so far. Uh, Moynihan, you finally saw your, your family today. And congratulations about that. Um, uh, and I don't yeah, they all seemed really disappointed, like Camille, that I did not have. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like we we actually were happy here in the in the Welch household. We're yeah. like, OK. Uh, one down, one to go. Um, uh, but uh, uh, no, like uh, my family's is holding up well, and we live in in a very like forward, you know, outward facing neighborhood. Um, you know, on day three of of the clampdown, it's been okay because we go out into the world, but this is just not normal. And um, Ravi Swabe had a piece of reason this morning, which I asked one of the right questions, which is like, okay, dudes, if you're really ser- seriously telling us we have to basically locked down for the next 15 to 18 months, then we're, we're not going to do that. There is no such thing as human nature saying, you know what? Social distancing 15 to 18 months until we get a vaccine. That's not going to happen. That's not pragmatic. Like humans, no. I ain't going to do that. We got to like pick no. the nits out of each other's hair uh, a little bit. And the, and Camille, you're absolutely right. Like there's, there hasn't been any thought uh, uh, about the long-term ramifications of this and how many people are going to be unemployed and what that does to health. And what, when you tell people they can't go to work and you, you give all these uh, 
constrictions on what they can do, um, lo and behold, that's when your supply chains kind of dry up. And that's, uh, and that's, uh, uh, the kind of trade-offs we don't hear a lot being talked about, but I want to make sure that we get into some um, some other uh, mails, can we? Mm-hmm. Since Patreon, yeah, 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 yeah. Because we're, I mean, this is this is all. I mean, Camille's got the best speculation in the business, um, but but yeah, we're we we know what we know. I'm and, uh, uh, I'm uh, I'm uh, wait and see. reading this one from CW mostly to give a hat tip um, to uh, Moynihan, but also because there's a funny line at the end. Uh, CW says Welch didn't sound nearly so bad as I expected on the uh, me and Moynihan twofer when I'd screwed up the audio. Uh, I was thinking, do I even bother trying to listen to this based on Moynihan's opening monologue? Always yeah. down- downplay expectations. Yeah. Yeah, That's yeah. the lesson, yeah, exactly. people. Exactly. We, c- we can all agree that Matt is basicly a boomer with technology. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Falling that's for the- phishing scams by Russian trolls, uh-huh. but the audio was the train track I thought it was going to be. Uh, and then goes on and on and then uh so i'm very glad that podcasts are still a thing because what the fuck else would i do all day uh play xbox with no podcasts in the background and then he closes cw or he or she try not to die moynihan we would all be quite sad <laughs> <laughs> well that's very that's very nice, that's nice to sad. i wonder what uh, he's playing while he's I- listening to this podcast um what do you think uh, I, red dead redemption is that a thing that's a <laughs> red dead one, redemption right? 2 yes the sequel oh, okay i don't know i yeah. gotta get i gotta well there's a similar one i got this one on um twitter dm and this is from david um and this is a similar thing and i just this is i just want to read this one because it's not there's no question to answer here but it's just one that made me happy i have to tell you these last few weeks, uh, days, weeks have been pretty terrifying with the onset of the virus. But your fifth column episodes have been one of the bright spots these last few weeks. You guys are just great. And honestly, it's something I look forward to almost weekly with all this other shit that's going on nowadays. I just I didn't respond to him yet because there's been so many uh, nice emails. But thank you, David. And uh, I just that was in the vein of what Matt just read. But uh, we're, we're trying. And uh, this will be the third thing that we've recorded this week, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, right? including yeah. one that included a terrifying uh uh depiction of michael of walking <laughs> like the invisible man over the williamsburg bridge right that's the bridge that you go on yeah, uh, yeah. and like uh being approached by a a randy a hasidic woman <laughs> not randy but friendly hasidic woman yeah. and so uh, michael <laughs> mentioned that we have be randy too uh, she was Randy. Mike, yeah. Michael <laughs> She's here right now. I just told her to be very quiet. These mics are very sensitive. She's very we obedient. Have, we have a Hasidic listener, and she, Robin, uh, wrote in. And this is wait, just... wait, wait. Because we, we have uh, a couple of Hasidic male listeners, a Hasidic female listener. Well, I mean, Robin with a Y. Robin. Um, Am I assuming Robin, too much? Robin with a Y. I, I don't know. know. Well, clarify, Robin. Robin Jones was my prom date, a Mormon uh, in uh, Lakewood, California wow. back in the day. Uh, huh. didn't, wow, just like went, uh, I'm, I'm having a fugue state now. Anyways, <laughs> was she, Robin was says, she a good Mor- Mormon or a bad Mormon, Matt? You know what I mean? She's, an, <laughs> she's an excellent Mormon, Camille. Uh, <laughs> she, sorry, she's also her. an ex-Mormon, Camille. <laughs> uh, actually her, yeah, it's a long story. Um, yeah, what did we, we'll, we'll get a different tier for your Robin stories. Yeah. Uh, what does this Robin have to say? Per your question about the Hasidic woman, which she, she spells with a C, which I not, didn't know that's how that happens. I was an assistant, and uh, my apologies for all my mispronunciations to come, oh, but whatever. Dear God. I was an assistant to a Rosh Yeshiva at a Haredi Yeshiva for years. 
being alone with a man from a Shomer Nagia standpoint is mm-hmm. really only an issue if no one can see you. For example, yes. if you are in a room that is closed or other private location, speaking publicly on the street isn't really a problem. It makes dating awkward, but I ended up married to a secular kibbutznik after trying the shiduk circuit for a while. So ultimately, wow. that lifestyle didn't work for me. My shul is now egalitarian. I Wow, love look at that. that. I just that's, love that. that's an X, you mean. So you started by saying that she's... Hasidic, but she's she's an ex. Wow, she married a reform. Look at that. Well, the funniest thing, this is not funny at all. It's actually quite grim. But um, Barry Weiss, our friend and, and um, uh, multiple time guest, uh, tweeted something the other day saying, hey, uh, guys in the Hasidic community, because it was all men, uh, and it was, either, it was either in my neighborhood or in Borough Park, uh, the other big Hasidic neighborhood in Brooklyn, uh, this is not okay. And there was a photograph of some gathering, religious gathering on, a, on, I think, Saturday night. And there were a ton of guys packed into this small space and they're doing their... And some woman uh, responded. She was like, you know, I cannot believe that the author of a book on anti-Semitism is being an anti-Semite because <laughs> you're attacking these people for their Judaism. And then I got a story sent to me today that there is a COVID outbreak in the Hasidic community. That was the last big news uh, from New York. There's a cluster and an outbreak in uh, my neighborhood, I guess, either that or in Borough Park. But but there's people that you see standing on the corner waiting for um, these uh, minivans that people they don't even know, they pick them up and bring them to Borough Park in other Hasidic parts of Brooklyn. So if it's there, it's probably here if it's localized in Hasidic community. And it's like, hey, you know, you're being anti-Semitic to talk about the city. And like, if you know anything about the Hasidic community, you do understand that they um, are are pretty insular. So if there's people in the Hasidic community that are, are that have this virus and it's uh, it's spreading fast, it will spread fast within the Hasidic community. So that was uh, a bit. I mean, Barry uh, Barry was uh, was uh, prescient, and uh, unfortunately, she was. So that's the the latest grim news on this. Uh, Do you have any other other non-grim emails, Matt? Yeah, this is pretty good from Jonathan, who's a military dude and Patreon subscriber uh, in Japan, um, saying this COVID-19 stuff is obviously affecting everyone and will continue. I agree with other listeners that you should put family and health first before the podcast. You don't don't really mean that, but that's nice. Um, That said, any efforts that create connectedness and fight isolation are doubly important these days. Yes, we hear you. We're we're, uh, we're, uh, trying to... uh, to lean into that if you can't keep up the good work and some good ps stuff uh of all the grief you guys got on air mate my singular gripe was that no one pushed back on his gratuitous use of the borat-esque phrase wars of terror (laughs) 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 i think he actually said terror wars but it was comical nonetheless oh yeah uh yeah it's couldn't get my wife to be a listener ah it's a shame she refers to you as quote a bunch of drunk guys that yell over each other, unquote. Wow. Divorce her. Leave Divorce her. her. Leave her now. Leave, leave her now. Her. Leave, her, leave her in Japan. Leave her she... in Japan. Get on a boat. <laughs> Get out of Japan. Go to Corregidor. I don't know. Do the Bataan wow. Death March. Get away from that woman. She has bad taste. She's not I worth mean, she it. married you, so I don't know. She's, she's I mean, a couple of seriously if, of good taste. If she's wrong about this in such a I profound know. way, what, what else is she misleading is she wrong you about? about? Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm she so did, sorry. She did actually send me an email, and she's like, slavery was a good thing. And I was like, dude, <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. Take What's the children. you in Japan? <laughs> take the children and leave her. And yeah. Tell yeah. her we said so in the notes. Now, if wait. You, if you don't have children, don't have any with her. Because she is a racist. <laughs> there was, it, 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 it was going to get better, and you guys ruined it. Uh, oh, wait, no, no, wait, 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 wait. Oh, go is, ahead. Did, did, he, did, he, did he flip her? Did she come around? So she refers to you as a bunch of drunk guys that yell over each other, yell yeah. over each other and he points out, Jonathan, I don't see how that isn't a selling point, correct? Totally. Um, anyways, she did read Say Nothing and thought it was a great book. So exactly. she tolerates my obsession with the podcast, incessant references to it, and humble $10 subscription. Keep up the recommendations. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. You care to revise well, your remarks? Well, she... Uh, I, no, regret, I, mean, I regret she, nothing. She, no. I regret... I regret... <laughs> She should have said nothing. No, no. <laughs> that, that was too easy. I guess that was kind of no. so easy. But um, yeah, no, I still, I'm still not on her side. If she read the book and she was like, "Oh, thank you, Fifth Column, let me denounce you to my husband." Doodle doodle do. Ko Min. How do you pronounce that, Michael? That's one of those Irish things. Uh, Cow Min. God, here we go. Continue. Uh, says you guys are keeping me sane right now. Keep it up. Also, Matt JFC, dude, I love you, but you're such a luddite, and also don't ever change. I don't know why people keep saying stuff like that. Um, also says P.S. The audio book of The Stand, Stephen King's epic tome, a great book, is probably not the best choice right now. Yes, uh, considering that people die of an infectious disease in which they're overcome by a pandemic of flu in which they choke on their own mucus in their lungs, if I remember correctly, Mm. Um, isn't probably the best choice right now, but I'm totally into it. Uh, I would be curious to see who reads that. Does uh, Stephen King uh, read that? But anyways, uh, it was a very sweet and much longer than that uh, message from K. Oh, man. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Well, I I will say that if you're, there's a lot of people looking for things to do and stuff to read and stuff to watch and the rest of it. And um, I like giving recommendations because I like engaging people um, when they write in and say that they liked it or didn't like it. Um, But one thing that we haven't done is audiobooks. And audiobooks are are pretty fantastic, Um, particularly when. You're going totally crazy and you can't do, can't sit in front of the computer anymore. And I'm like pottering around the house, cleaning and disinfecting and doing all those things. I put um, audiobooks on the, the Google system that I've got rigged up in here. And um, uh, if you want, I, I, the reader changes everything, right? I mean, you have a great book and a really bad reader. Um, it is awful. And it's just like, I, I, I have to turn them off. And there was one time actually that, that, that in the early days of, of audiobooks really becoming a thing again with the internet and with audible is that, uh, Graydon Carter assigned uh, hitch one to, to do, to do some audiobook things and particularly about PG Woodhouse, who, um, one of my favorites, one of the things that we connected about early. And there is a, uh, I think a theater actor named Martin Jarvis and the ones that Martin Jarvis reads of PG Woodhouse are so damn good and so damn funny. And of course, he's they're the, in the Jeeves and Worcester series of doing both of those voices wonderfully, 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 wonderfully. So I would recommend that. The other one is that a famous person, um, a couple of famous people reading books is, is, is uh, the um, Joan Didion uh, book, uh, uh, Slouching Towards Gomorrah, is Bethlehem. Uh, Bethlehem. 
Uh, so, sorry, sorry. Slash Jordan Gamora is Robert Bork's book. That's incredible. Um, <laughs> slouching towards Bethlehem. I don't know. I, I, I wrote something about that book when Robert Bork died. So maybe that's why it's in my head. But although he died like eight years ago. Um, uh, slouching towards Bethlehem. And I believe uh, the White Album, too, um, are read by Diane Keaton. Oh. And, and, yeah, and very good. And, 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 and Slouching towards Bethlehem is an amazing, amazing, amazing book. And particularly the essay on San Francisco in, I think, 67, when she goes out in 67. Remember... The, the interesting uh, thing about Didion is that she became kind of, you know, sort of a woman who wrote about politics and wrote, you know, I would say broadly from the left and wrote a book about El Salvador. But she got her start writing and somebody who recognized her talent as a writer was William F. Buckley. She started writing for, for National Review. And there's a bit of that kind of feeling in the San Francisco essay about when she goes to San Francisco to see this kind of hippie movement that's that's enveloping um, Haight-Ashbury and Golden Gate Park and all this stuff. And it's terrifying and a brilliant essay read in that audiobook book uh, by Diane Keaton. And the final one I would say is that um, uh, he acts in the amazing television miniseries version. You should watch it from 1980 or 81. But uh, Jeremy Irons uh, was played uh, Charles Ryder in uh, Brideshead Revisited and then reads the audiobook and then also is in, I, I believe he was in um, a version of Lolita, but he reads the audiobook of Lolita too. Those are two great, because I mean, Irons is fantastic and the reader makes the book and really engage you. So those are just two weird, um, you're locked inside kind of recommendations. I would add, uh, since you just mentioned uh, Joan Didion, and because I mentioned Robin Jones earlier, am I going to tie them together? I am right now, Uh, which is to say uh, she wrote a piece uh, in 1993 for The New Yorker called Trouble in Lakewood. Lakewood is a a place where I went to high school, Lakewood High School. Um, It's uh, adjacent. Oh, wait, is that the gang? Yeah, Spur Posse. Oh, shit, Spur Posse. So wow. it, it's going to be too impossible to recount here, but just imagine like a a uh, middle-class, upper-middle-class suburb in the aerospace belt of uh, Southern California right at the time that said aerospace belt is going from 40 years of nonstop, unparalleled prosperity and building bombs and shit. Uh, and it's more than that, but um, to like, okay, the Cold War is over and we're starting to downsize now and there's recessions and there's all kinds of pestilence and woe. And in the middle of that, my high school has a scandal with a bunch of jocks, uh, some of whom, you know, I know through the transitive property, um, younger than I am, like three, four years younger, um, <clears throat> who call themselves the Spur Posse. And their gimmick was... They would uh, try to get to the famous numbers of famous athletes like uh, I forget even now, like any famous athlete, but like 42 would be Jackie Robinson. So like uh, 42 would be the number of sexual conquests that you have. It's like, I got a Jackie Robinson or I got a Barry Bonds. And so they're always trying to go there and they would like uh, try to one up one another. And in the process, there might have been some light. Uh, or not? And they're so in high like school, raping. So they're kind of faking a lot. Yeah, of it they're too, they're imagine, BSing yeah. a lot of it, uh, uh, and this horrified the nation. It became kind of a, a scandal for uh, a, you know at least a few weeks, a couple of months. And the thing that scandalized the world probably the most is that when they went in and interviewed the people, 
in the neighborhood, including local moms, including Robin Jones's mom. She's in the story. Um, uh, you know, who are like people who describe themselves as local moms or, you know, uh, neighborhood moms. They were like, you know, boys are just going to be boys. And I, I don't see what the fuss is. And while these, you know, fancy pants outsider journalos are going to come in here and tell us what to do. So um, Joan Didion's essay on this called The Trouble in Lakewood. It's it's findable on the inner interwebs. I um, just looked and it's it's available outside of the paywall on the New Yorker website. Yeah. It uh Which I'll be reading tonight. I'd never I've never read that. It uh it's one of those I have some slight disagreements with it. Didion is a great chronicler of of California. She's horrified by it, but knows it, um, which is probably the right kind of attitude to have. Uh and I had the sense when I first read this, and this is when I was an expatriate, um and but I you know, I know some of the characters in it that Oh, I'm learning stuff about the neighborhood that I li- grew up in um, that didn't occur to me before. Um, and there's and this is how maybe also the outside world would find horrifying the mores that I grew up in and find totally like unremarkable. Um, so imagine that happened to you. Joan Didion did that. Uh, and it's uh, got Robin Jones' mom, who's a lovely woman uh, and, and everything. But a very weird uh, in the moment story. And I, I actually haven't read it in a few years. It'd be really interesting to look at it from the perspective of Me Too and what's happened since then. Like it might be triply uh, horrifying to the sensibilities of 2020. But who knows? So check it out. Um, Eric sent something today, which is. Um... Uh, try the uh, this is on the sports thing, Matt. Yeah, try the Isle of Man Taurus trophy for old time real danger in sports, and it includes a YouTube uh link. Uh, the Isle of Man Taurus trophy, uh, it's absolutely insane, full of great Irish and other accents. I don't know what that is. Do you? Did nope. you click on that link? Is Not it yet. like people who throw like um refrigerators over walls and stuff? Uh, it, it can only be good. I, I want to point out that since we mentioned this and also have tweeted out some of it, the uh, participation trophies for everybody uh, are shiny, gleaming. Because uh, we mentioned in the previous thing, like, hey, we're all going to be bored at home, uh, going nuts, and there's no sports. Like, there's just no sports for months. <laughs> it's another thing that Camille's talking about. Thankfully, he's off shooting guns and he's killing the bears and the poors again. Um, but like, uh, we need to be able to watch some sports. So I invited people to find full length videos. And actually, uh, our friend Scott Ross, uh, pointed out that, uh, MLB apparently has put the last 10 years or between 2009, 2018, every major league game is searchable on YouTube now. So post, oh, yeah, I saw that. So post entire games and, and I'm, I'm uh, super gratified that some of it was like some weird rugby stuff. Uh, there was like a cheerleader competition that was yeah, actually that was, that was that was insane. <laughs> and then there was a blue sheer. One of our better listeners and friends out there um, said, OK, look, I'm breaking the rule. It's not a complete uh, game, but this is the most bananas ending of a football game in history. And oh, my God, it is. Go check it out. It was, uh, it was a Texas uh, like 1990s, mid 90s, a high school, like not even championship game, but like semifinal game. It is the craziest thing you've ever seen in your damn life. It is so astonishing. It's like a 10, 12-minute documentary. I uh, I retweeted out there. Go, go find it. It's great. But, uh, yeah, keep them coming. I retweet every uh, new one I saw. Moynihan was like uh, 
apparently watching the Angels World Series in 2002. I, I was this morning. <laughs> I was giving you a play-by-play of that. It was game five, right? Wasn't it? it was six, I think. It was Spezio. It was six, yeah. Uh, yeah, the Spezio bomb. I mean, geez, amazing. And then, of course, what happens is somebody actually wrote in about this is that I – I mentioned that how when I watch movies, I like look in people in the background and find them on IMDb and go like deep into their weird lives. Um, I do the same thing for everything. And, and the Spezio thing, I ended up um, looking at, at the sad things that oh. happened oh. after that. Oh, God, kind of rough. Um, he was in a band his... called Sandfrog. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's not a good band. <laughs> That's just not, obviously. And just it's... a lot of, of substance abuse and woe. And a lot I, of substance abuse. I'm, yeah. I'm an Angel fan, huge uh, going way back. And I love that 2002 team and the teams like preceding and, and post-seeding it a great deal. But they were roided to the gills. It, it was, uh, and God knows what kind of crazy substances uh, Spezio was on. And they were really, really uh, performance enhancing, most likely. Uh, but great team. And all those clips are awesome. Send them out there, particularly if it makes Anthony Fisher sad, uh, is, is always like a like super highlight. There's a couple of listeners out there who have identified that and they're looking for you but, know, but, New York uh, Yankees uh, losing and stuff. Yeah, well, full credit uh, to Fisher today who sent me a link based on... Um, the conversation about uh, Terry O'Reilly going into the stand at Madison Square Garden in December of 1979. Uh, he sent me a link. He said, I forgot about this one. And I'm walking uh, to, to um, go see my daughter. And I'm just taking my headphones on. And I end up, and it's like a half an hour walk, just trying to get some exercise. Been in the house all day. So I end up not even looking up and just watching this for like 15 minutes. And it is uh, really amazing because it's, two of the biggest scumbags in the history of hockey, <laughs> which is Bob Probert and Ty Domi. And the thing is, is there's actually a, I t- t- tipped Anthony off to this. There's a documentary about Bob Probert, who is just the biggest goon on the planet. And this one is like, okay, there's like Probert, Ty Domi, whatever. Um, and maybe this is just a Ty Domi thing. No, this is just, a, I think this is just a Ty Domi thing. So uh, Domi gets pulled off for like just decking this Flyers fan. This is in Philadelphia, gets into the penalty box. And, you know, Boston, like I'm from Boston. I grew up going to Boston sporting events. My dad worked for like almost every team, but one time with the exception of the Bruins. And um, I know what Boston sports fans are like. They're complete nightmares, right? And, uh, but nothing. Nothing. I'm sorry, people from Philly. Actually, I'm not sorry. You guys love this. You take great pride in the fact that you Philly sports fans are terrifying. I mean, and, they could, they might be almost as bad as you fucking assholes. They, I think they might be worse. I think the government actually, actually uh, classifies all Philadelphia sports fans as a street gang. Yeah, <laughs> it's just for, to get federal funding. Uh, <laughs> but, but. Uh, but Ty Domi's in the penalty box, and look at this Ty Domi uh, Philadelphia Flyers thing. And because I had mentioned this thing of uh, of Terry O'Reilly fighting fans, the so he's getting like just yelled at from some Flyers fan, and Ty Domi is like the biggest jerk off in the history of hockey. Goes and sprays the guy with his water bottle, and then another fan lunges into the penalty box. No, like, I mean, Ty Domi's got his equipment on, got his helmet on, and fights him. And the best thing ever is that you can find this online because in, uh, apparently he must be famous in Philadelphia um, sports lore because it says Ty Domi versus Philadelphia Flyers fan Chris Falcone. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it's got his fucking name. It's amazing. Hey, Falcone. Hey, I know, like this thing. Hey, fucking Guinea. Um, <laughs> hey, I can say that. It's fine. Um, but yeah, that was, a, that was a funny one too. So anyway, Camille's gone to sleep because yeah, he's like, it's it's a, unless it's I about it. basketball, he doesn't care. That is right? not true. I haven't gone to sleep. Yeah. Are you cleaning your gun? No, not cleaning my gun. I'm, I'm here and I'm listening to the conversation. Listening is a form of participation. Oh my, oh my he's angry. I'm not yeah. angry. Yeah. I am. I am. However, I'm deeply concerned about the future of the country. Gravely concerned. Oh yeah, my God. And I think I think we ought to be doing something about it. I, I, we have to Who's alert. We? we have to alert people. Every sane human that is left on the planet. Like this is really bad. It is insane. He's Camille's in no time for this levity, Matt. He's got no time. For no, I have I, a lot of time for levity. I'm, I can make jokes, but I'm, 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 I'm beside myself, like increasingly so. Define, define the this. Give us a three bullet points. So what is the this that is insane that we have to stop and and uh, and shout from Peter Thiel's rooftop to tell us what about? Keep in mind before you answer that question, Matt. When we were talking before we started, before we pressed record, we were like, we should go through the mail, and Camille was like, we're not going through any mail. Yeah, I got no, some no. stuff to talk I about. Know. I got some things. I got things. I also want to talk about things. Um, no, you said fuck our listeners. I was like, dude, <laughs> I did relax. not say yeah. that. You did. I didn't say you that. Did. I, no, was honestly, a slur. I, I actually like I actually like doing most of this behind the gate because I I want people to yell at me, tell me that I am being completely unreasonable and that I'm wrong. But for me, the the top line, Matt, is that in responding to what does seem to be a profound challenge. I think it is a huge mistake to adopt remedies that presume, that seem to presume, the only justification for them could be that this is going to definitely be more devastating than anyone could possibly imagine. Because the solutions that we're adopting certainly carry that built-in cost. Like that is the, that's the reality. And I, I just, there are, there are middle grounds. <laughs> there are alternatives to shutting down everything. And the fact that everyone's doing it, um, quite frankly, suggests to me that it, it, there might be even more reason to suspect it's a panic than not. I mean, the panic is there. There's no doubt there's a panic there. Um, the only question is just how much of the response is like genuinely justifiable based on what we know or can even reasonably infer. Um, and I think once you stop asking questions about degrees of confidence, like, there are plenty of people who just won't notice that those questions have stopped being asked, but that suggests that you're in a pretty dangerous place. And I think we're, I think we are there. Let me ask you a question. Uh, not that I necessarily disagree with a word that you just said, um, although I disagree with the outfit that you're wearing, which is like a, wearing the machine gun like a X across your <laughs> shirtless torso as you're rising up yeah. with lamp black under your on? eyes uh, from the swamp. Uh, and like satisfaction or some Creedence song is playing in the background and you got a lot of knife in your teeth. I disagree with that, the look. Uh -huh. uh, but the... Um, has there been any moment in the last three weeks where you where the facts on the ground, not the hyperbole on the ground, but the facts on the ground have exceeded 
your previous ideas about how bad it could be. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think last week, um, last week I was just looking at things and evaluating. Actually, the week before that, towards the end of it, I think there was a moment where I, I was texting with you, Matt, and I said, I, I think it was probably, you know, a day ago that I realized that this is 9-11 and it's like much worse than 9-11 because it's sustained and it's going to be drawn out over a duration that I can't fully appreciate. And I had to say, I'd said to my wife like earlier in the day who got particularly nervous when she saw that I was like fairly concerned about not the, the response, but the pandemic itself, um, because I, I don't know that this won't be profoundly bad. And there's lots of reasons to suspect it could be. Um, but that said, it's still the case that we're adopting a remedy here that takes out all the stops and doesn't really leave room for qualification. And every day we essentially make it worse by adopting remedies to the remedy, <laughs> which are similarly bad. Like not, no sooner does Mitt Romney decide that he is a UBI endorser, at least for one-time payments that we decide, Oh, well we need to do it again. It, there's no way that most of this stuff doesn't get frozen in amber in some way. Um, and I am growing increasingly concerned that the remedy might be worse than the harm that we're trying to avoid, or at least nearly as bad. And that seems like a, a, a bad way to approach things. Uh, at a minimum, I don't hear enough conversation about just how how profoundly bad the remedy is. And I see no conversation about what middle grounds might look like. I think one... one uh reason for the dislocation beyond the usual panic and the instinct in any moment of crisis just to expand power, write bigger checks and et cetera. And again, with no meaningful ideological break on any of that activity anymore, that's finished. That's that belongs to a different era. Um, but the uh, acute panic in front of us and by us, I mean those of us who live in New York City and haven't absconded to the compound, um, <laughs> is that like you're just seeing the capacity of uh, the local healthcare system be uh, soaked up. Like it's going to be overrun very soon. All those numbers have that you were referencing curves before those curves have been consistent all throughout and consistently horrifying. And you look at it, that's the thing that you want to get. In fact, I'm frustrated by a lot of the policy discussions, including, you know, payroll tax relief, this, that, the other bailing out the airlines, screw all that. Like for me, all of the energy should be bent on uh, how do you, you know, yes, flattening the curve is very important. And I'm certainly uh, participating in that uh, personally, but like, how do you build up capacity and speed up, solutions to everyone as that that's everything that's all i care about all bailout money just go d bail that out bail out bail out capacity get people who are sick money if the, you're going to be giving money to people do that thing now so that's a very specific concrete fear that's in front of us and there hasn't been any reason to to think that it's not going to be just as bad as expected in like the like the next seven days it's just there it's not like two million three million it's not the 18 month scenario it's like no next week in new york that's 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 one thing so um the things that people are doing for that uh are all kinds of broad 
different overreacting, you know, semi whatever that they're they are enacting policies, uh, some of which will have far reaching and really bad, I think, impacts, including even on that very narrow subset of what the problem is in front of us. I I, I tend to believe um, without having the, the data necessarily to support it. That if you tell everyone they got to stay the F in their house and not do anything, that it's actually going to make it more difficult and not more easy for local healthcare care uh, facilities to do their job. I mean, everyone's out of work and sheltering in place and all supply chains or many of them are broken. I can't imagine how that's net helpful. But ultimately, these are two like pretty separate things. So the stuff that you were acutely worried about, Camille, and you're right to be worried about it, um, uh, is on kind of a, a macro level or at least a, a side. It's, it's a side issue. Um, the acute issue is a real one. And it, uh, it, it, I think people are rightly freaking out by it, uh, out about it. And if anything, they're not uh, focusing, narrowing their concentration enough on it. And that kind of disparity between those two tracks um, causes a lot of uh, either confusion or just like uh, stuff zooming by people's brains in the night. Um, the thing that I, that, you know, without uh, speculating about what is going to happen, which is something we have to do, is that seeing what's happening in real time is, is I think, also quite troubling, is that our friend Aaron Mate um, tweeted this uh, 20 minutes ago. And of course, I read it as if it's somebody who I'm going to agree with. And I realize that he's tweeting this, agreeing with the person that I would be disagreeing with. And this is a clip of Chuck, Chuck Schumer. And the tweet says... Schumer just now talking about using this crisis to improve the social safety net and implement ideas like placing workers on company boards. Bernie may be losing the primary, but his movement is having an impact. So that's yeah. Aaron's, of course, positive positive thing there of that, you know, and um, I sent it's you guys another tweet, which I, I don't even actually have any interest in addressing. I texted it to you guys. But um, uh, this idea that this virus and the response to, to it is... Um, a failure of capitalism, and this it's is crazy. now is becoming. I mean, by by the way, I don't know if these people think that um, all is going incredibly well um, and going to have no impact whatsoever in places like Sweden, in Norway, and particularly in Sweden, and places which is always held up as the model, which has you know had budgetary issues and curbed. It's uh, like, I, I would say, excesses of uh, giving people, you know, half a year off and the or the free year, the free or which they used to give and stopped doing under Frederick Reinfeld. But the idea that that a social democracy can sustain this type of economic disruption with no impact and and, you know, obviously that's the success of social democracy and the failure of capitalism. It's, it's really crazy. interesting to just watch people think in real time and be so sure about it because what they end up doing is they have these thoughts in real time because they're sitting in front of their keyboard. Um, you know, I mean, like I, I there, there's certain people that I just I'm disgusted by who sit around on Twitter doing nothing, contributing nothing to the world. Um, but, but you know, they're instantaneous hot takes in which when they're point, when somebody points out the one that I just sent you, nobody is pointing out that this is not a failure of capitalism. Um, but, uh, you know, they just, if somebody does chime in and say, hey, here's the problem with that, 
it's not an exchange of ideas. They say, yeah, you know, that's actually a really good point, which is what we end up doing all the time with our listeners um, when they email us and disagree with us, is that they, whatever their hot take is of that moment, they dig in their heels and they try to defend it because they have to defend what they said, regardless of whether or not it's true or sensible. Um, and that's what is really disappointing about this whole thing is to see the the politicization of it is like, if you can politicize or be criticized for politicizing crises or, or disasters, the rest of it, you have to be pretty consistent about it because the idea that placing workers on boards is somehow relevant to the coronavirus and our reaction to it and not just opportunistic um, politicking and, and disaster socialism to use the Naomi Klein fra- phrase flipped on its head of disaster capitalism is like, as I said before, I don't know if it was the Patreon one or the one we did for wide release, is that obviously in times of crisis, people are going to push the ideas that they think are best. And those ideas can be capitalist ideas, libertarian ideas, you know, sort of populist ideas, left-wing ideas. It doesn't matter. But when you see stuff that is so far afield from what the actual crisis is and what the problems facing us are, um, that just strikes me as like someone should slap you down and and, and, and say, hey... You know, you're using this opportunity of old people dying to try to get some silly pet policy passed and and, and, and trying to relate it tangentially to what is going on. I mean, I think that is another problem that I see actually manifesting itself now and that you don't have to look at modeling for. You can see the people who are saying, okay, let's cram these ideas through now because you know, this is socialism. We're going to give people money and this is what socialism does and what capitalism has created. Um, the built-in ignorance of something like that is uh, pretty remarkable, but it actually seems to have an effect on people. Hey, can I... Because they know that the, the government is actually intervening and that the market cannot sustain something that was created by, by government diktat and government fiat. Can I uh, feed into Camille's paranoia as we, uh, <laughs> as we head into the home stretch here? So, uh, Bill de Blasio, since we've been talking tonight, he's the mayor of New York City. He was a former presidential candidate. Didn't work out too well for him. Um, yeah. President Trump. We only, ha- need, we only needed one candidate who loved the Sandinistas in the 80s. Who he backed immediately. Uh, President Trump has to mobilize the U.S. military to fully act in the coronavirus uh, situation. We need their first-rate medical teams. We need their logistical support. We need their ability to get supplies from factories to where they're needed most. The only force that can do that quickly and effectively is the U.S. military. They're being sidelined when they should be called to the front. This is the front right now. We need the, f- oh we need the U.S. military where they can save the most American lives. And right now, that place is New York City, and soon it's going to be a lot of other places. Mr. President, give the order. Camille wait, wait, Foster. Can, I, I, mean, well, can I quickly, but like, I want to get it to Camille, but can I ask a quick question? I, I said before it would be smart of the president to have had the idea to get a floating naval hospital off of New York City, a, a very dense population, and get the two weeks that it's needed to get that ship prepared to do that two weeks ago. That's very, very different. Are we actually in a place, and I'm going to throw this to Camille in this, I'm I'm not seeing the reporting, and I'm very very open to being wrong about this. That we are having a situation in New York City, and, and Bill De Blasio seems to be demanding that this is the New York should benefit from this right now of the military uh, <laughs> activating the military to take care of this. Are we having a problem of hospital beds right now? Are we having? I mean, I don't 
see that being reported. Perhaps it, it, it is in anticipation of it. But is that a problem that we're, 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 we're looking at right now? Because I haven't seen any reliable reporting or modeling on that. And again, I very, very well could be wrong. But I'll throw that to Camille. Wait, the, the, narrow that question for me? Well, the question is, uh, uh, at its narrowest point, is that he's making a call for the military and military medical teams who are desperately needed. But I didn't know that that was desperately needed in New York. I haven't well, seen the reporting that said that that was true. Well, in general, there is a, a concern that we don't have enough beds. And by beds, we mean like ICU beds, beds that sure. are staffed with medical professionals to be able to meet the needs of what sort of the peak of this this nightmare pandemic situation might look like. So that is a very real concern. And there's been talk about bringing in like the medical doctors who are associated with the military. Although I, I suspect many of these people are actually practicing medicine someplace already and could very I, well I so, be, yeah. be brought in um, to, to the fray. My, my, my concern here, and I, I, I almost don't want to say it out loud, both because it sounds hyperbolic and because I just, I hope that it doesn't happen is I keep having these, I keep imagining scenes uh, three or four weeks from now of angry Americans like in the street confronting law enforcement officers or other armed agents of the state and there being like an actual violent conflict. And that is, it's utterly terrifying to me. And I don't understand how the Bill de Blasio's of the world and other like progressive leaders of states or cities or towns like don't appreciate that, that that is the sort of jeopardy that they could be putting people in by insisting that the military get directly involved in all of this. I mean, that there, there are so many great honorable people who decide to go and serve and serve in the military, um, that their job is by and large to blow shit up. It's like what they do. And I mean, they could do a lot of things, but generally speaking, I don't, anytime you have, uh, guys with huge guns, like keeping the peace, um, in the streets who are usually, you know, dealing with improvised explosive devices and stuff like that. I just, it's a, it's a frightening prospect. So whatever we do, we should be very careful. The, uh, Michael, to, to answer your question um, about uh, uh, hospital capacity, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I saw earlier tonight, like um, for the sake of argument that New York City has something like right now, you know, 3,000 ICU beds. It could be 10,000. And I'm yeah, sorry, it's like, I'm getting that wrong. Yeah, it's, I just don't understand what the military but, is going to do about ICU beds. I mean, if, if that if if that is, if there is I mean, some... the military, so for instance, during the Ebola crisis, the U.S. military, and I, I don't remember which wing of it, went out to Africa and built tent hospitals right there. Yeah, but we're in New York City. Yeah. I don't understand what they're going to do in New York City. Like, if it's doctors well, you could use... that we need that are military doctors, I mean, you can probably turn on a dime and get get people that are on the East Coast that are are, are military affiliated or military doctors and get them here fairly, fairly quickly when the time comes. And to Camille's point about inducing panic, 
That's the thing. Like, I want to know, like, I get that there are projections that these people might be needed, but for Bill de Blasio to be going out there and saying, like, we need to bring the military into New York. It's like, okay, you thought there was no toilet paper or meat in the stores yesterday. Wait till they strip it tomorrow <laughs> when people are like, wait a second, we're bringing the military in? What the hell's going on here? I mean, yeah. just some common sense of yeah. like, let's have that as an option and a possibility. How about Bill de Blasio, you stupid, pointless piece of shit? Don't actually go out and start talking about this to the public right now, inducing any level of panic. And I just think that, like, you know, I, this has become a cliche now because everyone's saying it. But Andrew Cuomo has done a very good job, especially when in comparison to his mortal enemy, Bill de Blasio. Yeah, well, it's it's a, he's, it's been, an, he's been saying calm down. Yeah, it's an know? arms it's an arms race of concerned hand wringing from elected officials. Like I, I was there. I was standing in the breach for you. I care. Um, but but in in their defense, I suppose, I mean, one thing that you could do, Moynihan, is they, there's been talk about taking a campus like Columbia where you've got all these dorm rooms and the process of actually converting those rooms into like triage or hospital rooms or ICU type situations where people could be um, cared for uh, over long periods um, is, I mean, it's a thing. It's possible that you could do that. And it's possible that there are particular people within the military who could be able to help with that. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's possible. It's possible. And that's a very real part of the, of the crisis. The fact that we don't have the capacity, no, no. it should be said though, in defense of, of U S healthcare, since I've disparaged it in the past, I believe that the United States has the greatest number of, beds that are staffed per capita of any developed nation. So that is obviously going to create a contrast between the United States and all of the the various national healthcare services that exist out and there. And again, and again to the point is like I always uh preface this stuff with my extreme ignorance about it and I'm learning as a lot of people have learned mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, you know as it as it goes. But um, my point is, like, I just I, De Blasio's kind of scaremongering. I think has been has been, you know, it might be end up being right. But I think that one can message and telegraph this stuff in a different way. I mean, I saw there's a headline from it looks like it was it was you know from a couple hours ago. Bill De Blasio says, "quote He's almost ready to call for a shelter in place plan after coronavirus cases in New York City." This is in, in capital letters because it's this bits in capital letters because it's the Daily Mail doubled to 1,871 within 24 hours. Um, OK, so, of course, Cuomo says that he has not he does not capable of doing this with a, on a on a citywide basis without um, the governor involved. And he says that this is not necessary. But also that headline with the, the capital letters of doubled is like, well, yeah, it doubled. We're now actually have a testing regime and regimen that is actually being deployed. And I know people that have been tested in the past couple days in the past, myself included, that would not have been able to be tested a week ago. So that doubling should not get a capital letter treatment. We expect that it's a matter of how that curve goes up in the next couple of days. Um, you know, I, I think all of this stuff is, is, is just is only panicking people. And the reason I think I'm so hot on this at the moment is I'm getting text messages right now from a friend of mine who admitted that she's drunk, by the way, uh, who, is, <laughs> who is Italian, 
Um, I was going to say, say hi to Cat, but go on. No, yeah, this is, <laughs> this is an Italian version of that. Um, uh, <laughs> who lives in New York City is, of course, very concerned about her family in Italy, but um, is fully freaking out. And it's just like, is, is sending me links and is fully, fully freaking out. And I will read the, um, uh, she said, um, hold on. Um, Italian accent, please. I, I am a drunk, by the way. <laughs> that was what I was looking for. That was the text I was looking for after this, this crazy thing. And then um, um, I cook. Uh, should kill me if I didn't say. I cooked and cleaned so much today. If this is what life is going to be like from now on, seriously, I'm not sure I could go on. <laughs> She's serious, but not serious. And then she says, can you have a drink with me? Are you busy? This is right now. And this would be a, a tele-drink. This is what we're doing. This is like telemedicine, but for alcoholics. Oh, is no. that I guess you get up on Skype and you just look at each other and drink. But um, but yeah, I just I mean the reason I'm I was reacted so strongly I think to mm -hmm. that was like it was concurrent with getting these messages and I want to tell her just relax, relax, yeah, yeah. relax. No, I, you're it's gonna right. be fine. You're it's right. gonna be fine, and um, you're not gonna die. And yeah. I, I tend to with people like that send them the numbers of uh, of uh, like like for instance, a scary headline I saw today. Youngest man in Britain dies, 45, 46 years old. Um, three paragraphs in. This was in the BBC, too. Three paragraphs in. The, in 2016, the guy was given two years to live. I mean, come on. Because he has... Come on. I mean, come on. Seriously, right? And, and then, you know, and, and also, like, th this stuff is going on. I, I, I texted you guys about this. And our listeners can look this up. All Things Considered, the flagship news program of NPR, a national program, at 6.10 on the 6 o'clock news broadcast, had a thing, a digression from a reporter about Donald Trump calling it the China virus. At 6.20, as I was about to turn the radio off and walk over to see my daughter, um, there was a full story about Donald Trump calling it the China virus. And then I saw a bunch of people tweeting about it, Asian-American doctors saying this, uh, the, the hatred against Asian-Americans is really at pitch level. I don't, is that true? I haven't seen any of this. Maybe, no. maybe I'm missing something. There's no, a couple there, of, there, there there's been some a couple of well attacks. Yes, there were there were actual attacks. Yeah, yeah on uh, attacks in New York yeah. on uh, on uh, on Asians with people uh, like screaming, you know, the effect of you infected us, whatever. And there's been at least two. I saw a story about someone spraying someone with a bottle of Febreze because they oh. were Asian. But I mean, it's Febreze. Like, Clear, Febreze clearly, that person is a serious anything. member of society. <laughs> <laughs> but but can I can I say can I say something about the Chinese virus? Um, and you know this is going to sound a little bit MAGA, and I don't care when he's right. <laughs> when he's right, Jeez he's right. Christ. Not oh, not God. only not only does this virus have roots in China, it wasn't only born and incubated there. The Chinese government like sought to cover this up, and as a result of almost certainly both the incompetence and climate of fear that comes along with being a, a local bureaucrat in a, a, a technocratic state like this, um, a technocratic tyranny. Um, they, they obviously made official decisions to try and obscure the degree to which they had lost control of this situation. And through their co-opting of the World Health Organization, have been able to laud themselves with praise while having completely botched the situation. 
um, in terms of trying to contain this or raise global alarm um, about this thing that was developing. And that's not even setting aside the fact that their like wet market uh, policies like help contribute to a more dangerous global environment, like being a, a spawning ground for all of this. It is fair to call it the Chinese virus. Because we're not, at least for me, I'm not talking about Chinese people. I am talking about the Communist Party of China. It is a disastrous threat to human life. Like, fundamentally. That is an accurate statement. So I don't have any problem with that. I also think it's a little absurd to be getting upset about that in the same week that they are throwing American journalists out of the country because they don't want people there to tell the truth about what the hell is happening there. Like. It's insane. Um, is the president using the phrase to deflect blame from himself? Yes, he is. Undoubtedly. Is it a racist phrase? I think that's absurd. I think it's silly. It is totally stupid. But even if it is, like you're a dope if that is what's getting you excited right now. Like, you're the worst kind of dope. Aren't you Come excited? Here, what do you th- uh, aren't what you, do you excited right now? No, if, you, if you're excited <laughs> because you think it's racist. I'm excited you're excited, because you're excited, I'm excited because the Chinese racist. I'm excited because the Chinese are actually monstrous. And if you Camille, don't do you have contempt the for them, the something is wrong with you. <laughs> the red Chinese, please. The red on. Chinese. No, I mean, look, to the NPR point, if you want to have a piece about that, that's totally fine. And to and you can say, you know, Donald Trump is deflecting blame from this and blah blah blah. And he I think responded to a question about this saying that like there's uh conspiracy theories that the Chinese government are pushing that it's an American, uh, you know, set up this virus, et cetera, which, you know, of course, because our scientists are so good that we create this very specific virus that kills old Italian peoples and people and then affects a bunch of Americans. Yet we're amazing at this sort of thing. The CIA church commission had nothing on what we're doing now. (laughs) That might not be the, the, the reason that he's doing this. And it's perfectly fine for NPR to do this, to mention it twice in the first 20 minutes on two separate occasions, two separate stories on a day when, you know, the cases in New York doubled, right? So I don't like, we're seeing increased testing. What's going on? What do we need to know about this? The NPR Knicks are out there talking about whether or not uh, Trump is using this in in a racist way. I just don't care. I don't care if he says German measles, the Spanish flu, or, or the China virus. He's being a dope, and he's playing silly games. He needs to be doing other things. But it's not, it's not worth even having a conversation about. Yeah, yeah. And, and can I just say, as we conclude here, um, one, two things. One, I think this is very good. This, is, this has been a wonderfully enjoyable conversation. I'm always happy to spend time with you gentlemen. And I, I think we feels, should. Feels like a but. No, feels like no a but. I, I, I think it's so good that we should just release it wide. Like we should. And I, I know that would be two in a row yeah. that we did this way, but I think we should. I think we should. The, the second thing that yeah. I want to say is I am, if you're not deeply concerned about this pandemic situation, you're a silly person. Like you should be concerned. Like there's every reason to think that this could be very bad. Um, I don't think it is likely to be as bad as people are saying in the worst case scenarios that they are imagining because a lot of the worst case scenarios, so far as I, I can tell from what I understand about reading them, like it, there really does seem to be a lot of threat and inflation going on. Reminds me of like weapons of mass destruction in Iraq in a way, like the the way that the intelligence like kind of compounds upon itself. Um, but 
that's not to say that there isn't a real material threat here. I think there is a grave threat. Um, and broadly speaking, I actually think there's a huge threat from pandemics, as I said earlier. And I, I worry about overstating the threat in this case and potentially diminishing our interest in actually doing the really, 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 really enormously hard work of trying to head off the next one because there will be a next one. And I, I just don't, I don't think we are remotely ready. Like it can't just be throwing tens of billions at the CDC or hundreds of billions at the CDC or spinning up the equivalent of a TSA for pandemics. Like there has to be like a serious national conversation about it, global conversation about it. And it needs to involve like various private sector elements and almost certainly some reforms that incentivize like uh, vaccine development and a bunch of other stuff. Um, Cause it's a huge deal. But at the same time, um, I, I'm deeply concerned about the, the remedies that are being proposed. And that's something that not enough people are alarmed about. So there. Yeah. And I just, that my thing on this is that I, have a similar instinct to you in a lot of ways. Um, the, I think Italy is, is a sobering example mm -hmm. that this is a, a, a bad and, and, and serious thing. But as, as far as uh, I think we have plenty of, you know, indications in the past, listen to scientists. Don't listen to us <laughs> in a way. Don't <laughs> listen to, I mean, look, I mean, honestly, like don't listen to the people on Twitter and the rest of it because there is this forward motion that happens with stories like this and people keep on, you know, doubling down and tripling down and you only get a certain amount of attention if you have a particularly grim uh, prediction uh, mm -hmm. that you, you you want to make, so that might not be the case here. Well, scientists but, uh, are vulnerable. It, scientists are vulnerable to that too. I mean, that's how we got the, re right. the replication crisis, which still totally exists. It is a thing that most of the things published in research papers like can't actually be reproduced, and it is certainly the case that a lot of the news stories related related to the pandemic um, are news stories about papers that are newly written rushed in fact into into publication before they've been peer reviewed so i i mean come on and and people like we've actually seen this when they do like p value hacking and arrive at a conclusion and essentially don't share the results when the conclusions don't when the the results don't meet the conclusions they had before I am not suggesting that that has happened here on mass. I am suggesting that we've seen that happen in other contexts and there's always reasons to ask good questions and to 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 listen to people who qualify their concerns. Uh Matt, do you cuz we're we're finishing up here. Do you want to give us uh, one more email that you picked? I do. Um, I do so because it just came and, uh, in and on a positive note. It just um, came in while we were uh, while we were oh. recording this from uh, RPFL Copter. No idea what that is. <laughs> Can uh, only be, begin yeah. to imagine. Um, you guys are great. Love and hate so much of everything <laughs> you say. <laughs> I'm yeah. laughing with you because I'm. I, I just opened it. And I'm reading it along too. Yeah, Currently drinking because what else is there to do during these times? That's a That's really correct. good. Open. That's a very good open uh, to any email. Everything else is gravy. I recently watched The Americans on Amazon. Pretty good intro to some history. I was born in November 1989. You poor bastard. 
basically right as the series ended, and I realize I have so little knowledge of the end of the Cold War and in general. Any recommended reading about that era? Uh, that's going to be a special uh, extra 17 episodes. Um, yeah. I am thinking about European history, but honestly, things like the Second and Third World in regards blah 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 would be great too. Uh, even experiences similar to Matt's and Michael's in Europe not long after that would be massively interesting. Uh, TK, as they say in the journalism industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a touch of background, my public education basically taught me USSR was a dictatorship and then it ended. <laughs> Which is like more than it taught me, to be honest with you. Like uh, we, we uh, the people my age, and I was born in 1968, not 1989. So like I win, you lose. Sorry about that. Um, uh, we're like taught, uh, you know, and then there's all this history and then World War II, the good guys won. And uh, that other stuff looks complicated. So the end. Uh, so we didn't get any of it. But anyways, he says, I had no idea of the arrest of Gorbachev and all the internal conflicts. Stay safe out there. And then yeah. he mentions that he typically proofreads better, but he's typing on his phone while probably intoxicated and uh, et cetera. Good lad. Very good lad. <laughs> we love emails like that uh, and uh, very happy to provide a succor. I don't know what that word means. I think it has to do with like a, like a cactus <laughs> that's, plant. That's, that's right. You, you got mm-hmm. it right. Um, I'll make one very brief recommendation. Uh, Victor Sebastian, a uh, great historian, and I'm reading one of his books right now, um, his book on Lenin, um, which is like a portrait of a dictator or a dictatorship, which actually gets Lenin right. Very few people did prior to to that i mean there's in academic books and richard pipes and people like that but victor sebastian wrote a book i think called 1989 um about the fall of uh the soviet empire and the satellite states very very good i mean a little after that you're going to get uh when uh uh gorbachev is lured to his to his uh dacha and um the hardliners try to to uh wrest power from him and you know the emergence of Yeltsin. It's a very interesting period, but uh, Sebastian's book 1989 is very good, and um, I would I would re- I would recommend that. Just off the top of my head, there are, there are a bunch of books that came out about the end um, of the Cold War around the anniversary, but that that one stuck out to me. Uh, there's uh, a couple of piecemeal ones that I'd recommend. Uh, uh, Václav Havel's Open Letters which is a compendium of his writings from 1965 to 1990, so that covers. Um, his journey from kind of like hot playwright in the middle of the opening of Prague in the 60s to bummed out uh, band uh, playwright to dissident and eventually president. And then it kind of uh, stops there. But it gives he's the most interesting, I think, uh, uh, intellectual kind of architect of anti-communism uh, and sort of like predictor of how these structures would eventually fall apart. Uh, that's interesting. Another person who uh, chronicled the um, uh, revolutions of 1989 and sort of a historian and columnist, uh, Timothy Garden Ash, uh, writes, uh, I think he's a Guardian or a Telegraph, one of these damn places now. Um, uh, perfectly uh, a great guy. One of his collections is called History of the Present. Um, that kind of uh, gives a, a compendium of these things. Another one, uh, he has a book called Magic Lantern. But uh, go seek his works out if you're interested in particularly the revolutions. And actually, one of his best books, uh, Michael and I mentioned The File, which is my favorite of his books. Yeah, it's great. Uh, which is a small book, and that's why it's so good. It's about him literally because uh, he was a student in East Berlin, I think, or like in Berlin, but yeah, like traveled yeah. to the East. He, in, was in, he was in East Berlin, yeah. He was a 68er, and he was kind of 
set not a full red, but like, you know, definitely lefty, uh, a revolutionary at the time, and it actually radicalized him. But he, uh, after the wall fell, and he had since become uh, the greatest sort of modern contemporary historian of Central Europe and a journalist covering these different things as well. Um, you know, as soon as the archives were open, the STB is like, oh, well, you know, I was there for a while, so let's see what they have on me. And he goes back and he finds the people who were spying on him and he interviews yeah. him. If you like the lives of others and if you haven't seen the lives of others, literally like rip the plug out from the wall, stop listening even to this scintillating podcast and go watch that movie it's one of the five best movies ever made um it's really good it's yeah. phenomenal you don't even have to like all that weird Moynihan shit it's just so good um but anyways uh it it like it has some similar resonances but uh uh one of uh Gart Nash's best books which I would not recommend as a starter but it's called In Europe's Name um, that uh, it's the history of Ostpolitik, which is a very strange, very specific, uh, like how did West Germany behave during the Cold War um, as this kind of they were sort of soft on communism a little bit, which you wouldn't expect. Mm-hmm. Or at least they were sort of open to talking with uh, Soviet Union. It's just it's a fascinating little history. But there's a thousand books that we can talk about there and we will at a future point. But uh Start with Václav Havel. It's, it's I just I just want to do one small correction because I had to look this up. Um, the Sebastian book is called Revolution, nineteen eighty nine. Um, you would have found that anyway. Um, Florian von Donnersmark is the guy who made Lives of Others, but he has a new ish movie. Well, like last year, called Never Look Away, which starts in Nazi Germany and ends in 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 East Germany, which is not uh, as good, uh, but it is still very good. Um, I think probably the best book that I've read on that subject that is not a history book that I, to, to Matt's recommendation about, about uh, uh, the lives of others, my same version of that, which with that much enthusiasm would be Anna Funder's book, Stasiland, which I think I've probably recommended to more people than any other book, uh, who is an Australian journalist who I think lives in Brooklyn now and uh, was doing work in, in uh, Germany, uh, long, not too long after the wall fell, but probably 10, 15 years, and p- places ads in the newspaper wanting to talk to people who were Stasi agents and those who were victimized. And the book that she wrote as a result of that is really, really fascinating. Um, and uh, I'll leave it there. But that that is a terrific book. So if you're quarantined and you want to read a book that you'll, I think Granta published it, you'll fly through, is uh, Stasi Land, the heavier one on why it all ended is Sebastian's book, Revolution 1989. So there you go. Camille, you got anything? You got any uh, recommendations on what kind of ammo to buy or uh, what kind of bears to kill? (laughs) (laughs) Enough said. Enough Enough said. said. All right. All right. Well, um, (laughs) that's ridiculous. All right. So we'll we'll talk to you again soon because we've got nothing better to do than talk to you guys. Right? <laughs> nope. Right. No, I'm I'm All still right. working. I am genuinely working from home. I'm doing I, every I, everything you I lie. can. You I'm lie doing like everything a rug. I can to save my startup. I am one of many people in the country who had a company that was going along swimmingly and out there booking business and doing pretty well, and now runs into this circumstance and can certainly not say with any sort of certainty, I'm not saying anything that any reasonable person who works for the company doesn't know, um, that, you know, we can make it through something like this. This is a huge deal. And we're better positioned to do it than 
most companies out there, most small businesses like that mom and pop shop that makes gyros, like they don't have the tools to make it several months and pay their employees. I, d- I don't have the tools. Don't. <laughs> they don't have it. <laughs> Not tools for me. So, you know. Sorry. I'm, I I'm just sent both of your texts just to prove that I'm working too, by the way. I just sent you a text of a photograph of what's going on behind me where I'm sitting, and there's just two, four, four Pelican cases. Oh, my God. Bunch, look at that. Bunch of oh FS7 cameras. And I'm going to be venturing out into the world very soon and shooting some things. Um, and you don't even have any firearms to protect all of that goodness. See? I, I'm, I'm going to ask you to come along with me. <laughs> so, just ride shotgun with a shotgun. That's all I need. Not in New York. All right. Bye. All right. Should we go? All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.